The cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And this week on The Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, what happens when four affluent teenagers with serious heart-wrenching problems, like having an interior decorator for a mother and being too attractive, sit down to play a game of D&D? Would it drive them crazy? Press on the dark boundaries of their very souls? Is Dungeons and Dragons really, in the end, just a gateway to hell? And the players, are they just rolling the dice on their own imminent demise? Well, let's find out. Because today we are watching Stephen H. Stern's 1982 film adaptation of Rona Jaffe's novel Monsters and Mazes. So please, sit back and grab your d20s as we explore the cavernous world of 1980s gaming paranoia through the lens of what has become known as the notorious satanic panic masterpiece of mediocrity. Brought to you by The Absence of Dice, Cave Gorvals, the feature film premiere of the wee Tom Hanks, the trivialization of depression, the bone-chilling dangers of being a nerd, and Satan. And of course, our safe word today is salvation. Anything to add, Benji? I can't remember. I don't know where I am. There's blood on my microphone. I think I podcast and bludgeon somebody with it. I don't know. I hate you. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of... Space! Boy! Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. I see you shiver with anticipation. Oh my god! Disappointed! Jesus. Where? Oh, hi, Mark. London, how's uh, how's uh, how's it rolling today? Huh? Do you, do you get that? Do you get that? Do you get? Do you get it? Do you get it? Do you get it? I do get it. Do you... I yeah. Don't know how yeah. it's rolling because I have no dice. <laughs> like this movie, literally has a bunch of D and D players with no dice. They show the dice at one point in the movie uh, in that dramatic your your fate is in my hands as he holds the dice that he never uses. Yes. Boy, that really just that that starts it off right there because this is a movie that any D and D player will watch and get enraged by. I don't actually know that that's necessarily true that D and D players would be enraged by this okay. because I am a D and D player and I was too bored to be insulted. <laughs> is what it kind of came down to, which is fine. Mazes and Monsters is definitely top tier of the. I would say, lamest movies we have discussed so far. I suggested this because I thought it would be an interesting way to kind of take a little dive into, you know, D&D culture, which I know that you're ver well-versed in, uh, the satanic panic, which I've always found fascinating. But our gateway to this is Maces and Monsters. A just, God damn, this movie is so fucking dull. Yeah, so it kind of dawned on us that... Like with Clue, it might be helpful to sort of upfront let people know why we chose a certain movie for a podcast on cruel cinema. This one is going to be a little bit twofold. 
one, it's not a very pleasant movie to watch. And so there is something just legitimately traditionally cruel in that capacity. But it also is a very interesting piece of work contextually in the history of cinema in terms of the impact that it had on the culture around it. So that's sort of why we picked this one. It's not because it's a good movie, not because it's a particularly <laughs> important movie in and of itself, but it's very interesting to annotate. And so that is what we will be doing today. And we are those of the cruel annotations. So that's how we roll here. Yes. Yeah, so Benji, what's the best thing about this movie? <laughs> oh, God. The best thing about this movie is having the rare movie where you can watch it and say to yourself, my God, Tom Hanks was terrible in this. See, I didn't think he was that bad, necessarily. I joked around when we were talking about Donnie Darko, and we see Seth Rogen in that movie. And I'm like, yeah, this is this is an actor who, you know, they haven't fine-tuned their instrument quite yet. Tom Hanks was kind of in the same ballpark, I think, when he was doing this movie. Like, he had his, like, goofy persona down, but bringing any gravitas to a performance was not quite his bag just yet. All right. So, yeah, that, it's it, the best thing to me is... is the enigma about that. And that really is the best thing I could say about this movie because I'll have a lot of bad things to say about this movie as we go along. <laughs> London, what is the best thing about this movie? And you better not be agreeing with me here. I know you're not. I'm not, actually. I thought that Tom Hanks was perfectly fine and promising in this movie. He was one of the more interesting performances about it. Not a high bar. I found this movie to be extremely dull. There wasn't a lot of best stuff about it. I am going to have to go with like the best and worst thing being kind of the same thing. And that right. the worst thing for me about this film is the impact that it had on popular culture and moral panic in the 1980s and the subsequent effect that it had on D&D &D at the time or Dungeons and Dragons as a role playing game. And we will, that is one of the big things that we will be annotating and talking about later is the impact that it had both on the gaming community and the sort of satanic panic, moral panic at large. That was really unfortunate at the time. But looking back, now that D&D &D has managed to only increase in popularity and that it's still played and beloved today, there's also something kind of great about having this movie as this historical artifact of a time in which people truly believed that there might be something about D&D &D that was getting the youth of America to worship Satan and summon demons and go into bouts of mass psychosis. Because when you contextualize that with what D&D &D actually is, that's kind of weirdly great. Yeah. Because I grew up playing D&D. &D. It was a bunch of nerds sitting around a table rolling a bunch of dice. So if for some reason people thought that that was somehow badass and metal enough to summon Satan, that's kind of great in <laughs> itself. So, yeah. What is the worst thing about this movie to you? It's a little related to what you're talking about because I definitely hate the 
the cultural impact that this movie had. But in my research into what inspired the story, because this movie is based on a run of Jaffe book, Mazes and Monsters, which in turn was based on a real-life incident concerning the disappearance of a college sophomore from Michigan State University named Dallas Egbert, James Dallas Egbert III. But he's always referred to as Dallas, so I'm just going to call him Dallas. Gotta like a person who's named after a city, you know? And the movie and the book missed the mark so much on why this happened that it's a little infuriating. And what fascinates me and also kind of upsets me and infuriates me about the whole satanic panic is that it seemed to be just one vast act of, hey, we have a problem. Look over here. Look over here. It's a different thing. Other thing. Other thing. Because it's very clear to the people who actually worked in the investigation into Dallas's disappearance that his troubles were not because of D&D. D&D was something he did, but it was a form of escapism to deal with the fact that Dallas was... He was so stressed out at college. A little quick background on Dallas that I can go into more later on, but he was a 16-year-old gifted kid, graduated high school when he was 13 years old, was a sophomore at 16 years old, and had no social skills because he just was not raised in that environment. He didn't know any other gifted kids growing up, and that's a thing that the investigator himself found out was gifted kids really need to be able to be around other gifted kids to develop any form of social skills because other kids can't relate to them that easily. And then on top of that, something that is not brought up in the book or the movie and that the media completely ignored about Dallas afterwards was that he was a gay kid. And I don't know what it's like to grow up being a gay kid. You might know. I do know what it's like to grow up being a gay kid. Yeah, I grew up as a kid who was called gay a whole lot. I, I can't tell you how many times I heard been gay on the elementary school playground when I was a kid. That's damn muscle cream. What can you say? I was going to say that at least you can appreciate the pun. There's some sort of creativity there, I guess. Yeah, that was the only joke they had, though, and what are you going to do? So, obviously, I cannot relate to the plight of being a gay man today. Being a gay kid in 1979 had to be horrifying. And that's what this kid was going through, was dealing with the stress from school, dealing with ostracization from society, uh, you know, being separated from his schoolmates because none of them could relate to this little kid. So Dallas suffered so much, and none of that is discussed in the media that comes about from all of this, be it mazes and monsters, be it gargoyles and griffins, or wizards and wardrobes, or any version of the story that's retold in later media. And that upsets me a lot, because like I said, hey, oh, here's a problem. Oh, look over here, look over here. It's this thing, it's this thing. It's totally not society hating who you are. Yeah, that in the long form, that's what upsets me the most about this movie. All right, fair enough. Well. We're also going to see with this movie that although it claims to be based off of this particular young man in his life, there's some confusion there because there are going to be four characters in this film and all of them seem to be facets from the Dallas Egbert case or person mm -hmm. split into four people. The person that is the most representational is not the one that actually ends up getting lost and going crazy. So we'll have to break that down a little bit too. So to what yeah. extent this is fully based off of the quote unquote true story is tenuous in many ways. So we will be expanding on that a little bit as we go throughout, but then some of our larger pins for this particular episode are going to be talking about Dallas Egbert and 
quote unquote in real life, the actual case there. We'll be talking a little bit about the history of Dungeons and Dragons as a tabletop game, how that developed, and then the impact that it had, and then the satanic panic media had reflecting back on it in the 1980s. In researching this, I read the book, The Dungeon Master, by the private investigator who was asked to look into Dallas's disappearance, William Deere. And I also read the book that the movie is based on, Mazes and Monsters by Rona Jeff. And there are a few minor differences, some of them very fun uh, to go into later on. The lightning summary of it is that there are going to be four college kids that start playing a game of Dungeons and Dragons on campus of Grant University, which I believe is a fictitious university, right, that they made up. Yes. And in the process of this, one of the kids played by Tom Hanks is going to start breaking from reality. He's going to start getting confused as to what's real, what's the game, until he gets completely lost in the game, travels to New York City on this pilgrimage to the two towers so that he can jump off one of them and join his lost brother, who's he's going to call the Great Hall. That's kind of the plot here, <laughs> is just the dangers of D&D. It was only a game, then it became real. Which is literally the tagline from the original novel. Nice. Yes, and when we get into the actual movie, it's going to open with the newsreels or some guy delivering this newsreel that somebody has gone missing and he's going to call it a psychodrama. I do love how this reporter latches on to this idea of Mazes and Monsters being the issue about as quickly as real life reporters did. So I found that to be, I think, an unintentional good touch by the filmmakers. Yeah, the, it sets a scene. It sets a tone. And then flashback. Yeah, so technically this whole thing is taking place in flashback more or less it's, until you get back to the end. It's a bit, it's a bit of a, it starts the flash forward, then we go back, I think about six months to the start of the fall semester at Grant University. And we're quickly meeting all of our main characters one by one. We're meeting Daniel, who's at home with his parents. And they say, why are you going to Grant University with your grades? You could go to MIT. You could be a, a computer engineer. You could be awesome. But mom, I just want to design games. This is a trait of Dallas Egbert that is addressed to one of the characters. Yes. Yeah, so Danny's going to be the side of Dallas Egbert that had overbearing parents who wanted him to do certain things with his life while he wanted to do other things. Yeah. The actor looks like Fred from Scooby-Doo. Oddly, in the novel, he is described as looking like John Travolta. I guess they couldn't get him for the part. Interesting. Well, either way, this is our character who's going to have a lot of hard times in life because he's attractive. God damn it all. Ah, uh, I hate that. And that brings him such plight. So tough. So tough. That's Danny. Then we have JJ. Hat boy. Yes, the hat boy. He's always going to wear a different hat in every scene, and well, it's just going to be Almost every great. scene, but it's, yeah, it's a definite feature of him. And his main problem in life seems to be that his mother is just constantly redesigning his room. Yeah, and she's really talented at it. Yeah, like we all have those grievances in life. Yeah, so he's going to come home, and I will briefly dwell on these designs because they're so spectacular. <laughs> so he comes home at the beginning and she's mentioned that she's redesigned his room again and he goes up to check it out 
and they open the door and everything is just pure white. All of the walls have been turned into tiles, sort of in a bathroom, locker room kind of capacity, but pristine white. The bed is this old style white hospital bed, white sheets. There's a wraparound desk that's all white. All of the appliances <laughs> or office supplies on this are all white. It's just everything. And there's oh, this yeah. creepy bird cage that's hanging in the corner, <laughs> also all white. And JJ has a reaction to this because he says, every time you do this, that you come into my space and you just erase everything that was there before and give me this new type of thing, it's like you're decimating my identity. And she's like, ah, but it's, it's pristine. It's great. This is in fashion. And she seems unconcerned about his concerns. Yeah. He is going to be the one that is the most similar in styling to Egbert because he is a 16-year-old genius that is in college. Yeah. He's described as being 16 years old and having a 190 IQ, which this movie will try to disprove as much as possible based on his actions throughout. But that is what Dallas Egbert had going on as a child. He consistently tested at a 190 IQ. Uh, the William Deere theorizes there were probably only 300 kids in the entire nation that had the same intellect as Dallas, which is what made his disappearance uh, very scandalous back in the day. Yeah, so at first going in, if you are familiar with the Dallas story, which... A lot of the people who would be watching this movie in 1982 as a sensationalist chaser for the news stories that they had been seeing circulating throughout popular media throughout the last year leading up to this film, you would think that this is going to be our character who is our Dallas figure and we're going to follow the Dallas story all the way through with JJ. That's going to turn out not to be true. Because then we meet Tom Hanks's character. Robbie. Robbie Wheeler. Uh, we see him being driven to college with the two most bitter parents of all time. The father just yelling at the mother like, why do you, you, you're so bitter. You're so cruel. You're just always drinking. And his mother is constantly drinking wine in the movie. In the novel, it's explicit that she's drinking vodka all the time. I imagine there's some Bret Easton Ellis cocktails, you know, thrown in there for good measure. Yeah, she was a, a super fun drunk. And <laughs> so we're going to get this, yeah, sort of family drama set up for him that he seems to have a stressful home life. We're also going to get a fourth character who is this woman, girl, can't remember her name. Wendy. Or not. Wendy. Kate. Kate, sorry. Wendy is the, actor, Kate? the actor's okay. name. Kate is the character's this name. Is how disengaging this movie was is that I watched this movie yeah. for what seemed like four hours and I did not pick up any of their names. So Kate, I, I can definitely see Kate as a self insert for Rana Jeff uh, because that's yeah, my theory. Yeah, yeah. Kate has no similarities whatsoever to the real life Dallas. She's a young woman who wants to write a novel. And the biggest problem she has in her life right now is that nothing has happened to her yet. So she has nothing to write about. These four are going to meet up at college. Tom Hanks's character does not yet know the others, so mm -hmm. he is going to meet JJ in the dining hall, and JJ is going to be wearing a really stunning aviator hat mm -hmm. in this scene. It really brings out his eyes and his smile. This one was oh, my yeah. favorite hat on him. It was a good look for him. Yes. He's, JJ has put up a flyer for a fourth D&D &D player, and 
this struck me as odd, but maybe this is more common before, you know, cell phones and easy communication was common. He puts up the flyer and he just seems to wait around for somebody to notice the flyer and then jump on them like, oh, hey, you noticed the flyer, as opposed to call the number on the flyer or leave a message in this room or something like that. I don't know. It, it struck me as odd. Well, I think it's supposed to be a little odd. JJ is a little odd. He's socially a little bit different because he is 16. He yeah. is this great dungeon master. He really wants to play this game because it's the way that he connects with other people and what he provides to his social group. And so, yeah, he's just waiting in... To be fair, it is the cafeteria dining room, so there's a possibility that he was there for dining cafeteria purposes and saw Tom yes. Hanks look at the sign and just say, hey, that's that's my group, you want to join? There's going to be two curious sort of little setups here with this sign. The first is going to be when Danny and Kate are talking on the way in about how they need to find a fourth one that's not going to drop out or do something. I can't remember what it was. Let's say I wrote it down. Um, they need to find a fourth player, someone who doesn't flunk out or freak out, not like last year. And so that's going to be a little subtle thing thrown in that perhaps this has happened before, what's going to happen with Tom Hanks's character, that somebody yeah. either flunked out or freaked out. And it's like, well, which one is it? Because you seem to have a very specific situation in mind. The book implies a little bit more that the last player, Matthew, I think his name is in the book, uh, basically wasn't operating at the same intellectual level that the other players were because they could all play the game multiple times a week and still get straight A's. And yet this kid could not. So he just ended up failing all of his classes because he was playing D&D &D or Mazes and Monsters or M&M, as the book sometimes calls it game. M&M, yeah. <laughs> so he did just flunk out, not freak out. But yeah, the movie doesn't give us that. So they give it to us in a very ominous way. Yeah. But these, this might be a habitual thing that they just bring in a fourth who loses touch with reality. <laughs> and then we get ominous setup number two, where Tom Hanks looking at this letter on or flyer and when he's asked do you play he's like i used to but i don't anymore <laughs> i i can't i can't do it anymore it reminded me of orgasmo in a little way <laughs> for some reason where the character was always just like i don't do hamster style anymore because he's, he's ta constantly talking about whatever martial arts fictitious martial arts he does and he's like nah I, oh. I can't do hamster style anymore. And eventually they sort of coax it out of him, the story of why he doesn't do hamster style. And it's just because in the flashback, it's like one day he's eating a bowl of cereal and he looks up from the bowl. And he's like, Dad, I don't think I'm going to do hamster style anymore. And that was it. That was the origin story of like why this character doesn't do hamster style anymore. <laughs> but what that's parodying, of course, is this kind of thing right here. The character that just lays down that little bit of a crumb in terms of there's something in this person's past that's dark and a reason why they've cut this part out of their life. And whatever that something is, JJ does not pick up on it because he immediately invites um, Robbie to his Bridget Bardot birthday party. Nice little, what a fun theme for a college party. Yeah, and what was even more fun, it wasn't that he was throwing a birthday party that was for himself and it was Bridget Bardot themed. He was throwing a party for Bridget Bardot, <laughs> <laughs> which makes JJ just great. Because that's when Tom Hanks is like, is she going to be there? And he's like, no, why would she be there? What also makes JJ great is that he wears a construction hat to the Bridget Bardot themed birthday party. I don't know why, but 
he had it, so that's yeah. great. Yeah, I feel like there's probably a more appropriate Bridget Bardot hat to really fully commit to this premise, but mm-hmm. yeah, he's wearing this construction worker hat, and this is where the group finds out that Tom Hanks is the one that is a former <laughs> Eminem D&D player, yeah. and not only that, he's level nine. Oh, he's level nine. Yeah, oh, I play this game, uh, Maze and Monsters. You're kidding. Me too. What level? Uh, nine. Oh, me too. Isn't it great to make your own scenarios? Oh, yeah, yeah. The freedom that, that comes with that. It, it, it's great. So, London, this is one of, I'm sure, a few times throughout this that I will ask, is that a thing? So this is where it gets tricky, and I will go into this at sort of a a larger capacity detail later. These are like a few pins. This this is a a deep dive. (laughs) Yeah. But one of the things that's important to contextualizing Dungeons and Dragons and the play style in this movie is that D and D came out initially in 1974 as a what is now known as like O D and D, the original D and D. And that was just sort of a series of booklets. And you don't really get the sort of published book until 1977, which is going to be Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. And that's kind of published until 1979. But then there's also these kind of things where OD&D was still being published simultaneously. So I don't know what version they're playing ah. because Advanced D&D and OD&D are two very different things. They were actually quite divisive in the D&D world for a little while. One was much more focused on mechanics and one was much more focused on role play. It does seem like this is the more focused on role play one, which would have been OD&D, which unfortunately is one of the ones that's harder now to kind of find original copies of those pamphlets to see how they were fully played. Mm-hmm. I kind of tried to get a sense. I, I reached out to some of the older D&D players I knew as well as like some forums online to see how people that used to play OD&D back in the 70s, yeah. how they played it. And we'll get into leveling later. The leveling thing to me makes no sense. Oh. There's a chance that <laughs> initially in traditional war games um, or war style games, It might have been that they recommended that you play to a certain amount or a certain level before you start becoming a dungeon master yourself. Mm -hmm. This, however, and that's that's not confirmed. I can't find that rule anywhere. That's the only thing I can speculate. Ah. But that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because when you're buying these pamphlets, at some point, these are going to be all these people's first times, right? So I don't know how you get your first ninth level DM to get other players through to a ninth level. It just doesn't make any logistic sense. So I don't know anybody who ever practiced that way. <laughs> if that was ever an esoteric rule, I'm not sure. But one thing that is universal is that you have characters that have levels. You as a player don't have a level. So your character starts out at a certain level And when they die, right, you write up a new character. And this was incredibly common in original D&D and advanced D&D. They were brutal, kind of more dungeon crawling scenarios. You lost characters all the time. So they would have played multiple characters, Mm -hmm. possibly. And so, yeah, this level nine thing is very, very bizarre. And why they're so excited about it, I'm not sure. What we will talk about later is the Wizard and Warlocks episode that also does some crazy things with levels, and they're actually a lot more accurate in oh. terms of the pre-second edition. So they're excited. They're all excited. There's a weird joke in this that doesn't land. I don't know what the, they were trying to do when 
Robbie comes in, he brings a bottle of wine, and JJ looks at it and says, Oh yeah, 1987, good year. Maybe JJ just knows his wine? Well, the movie takes place in 1982. Oh, so they say 1987 is the bottle vintage? Yeah. Okay. Uh, if there's a joke there, it wasn't delivered well or it wasn't written well, I'm not too sure what that was. Huh. Maybe it's just that he's a weird kid, and so he future time travels his wine. Maybe he's an actual time traveler. I could see that with JJ. I think he, he probably will eventually invent time travel. Who knows? But anyway, they're set down. They will not take Robbie's protestations about not wanting to play in D&D because he almost failed out of college his first his freshman year. They're like, no, you're playing you're playing Eminem with us. Yeah, they they non-con him into that or dupe con at the very least. <laughs> oh god. And when they go to sit down to play D&D, this is going to be a trope that you see in a lot of D&D cinematic representations because mm-hmm. they do it in this, they do it in Wizards and Warlocks. And every single time, I'm like, man, I've been playing D&D all wrong. Like, this is fucking great. And it's that they go into a moody, atmospheric room where all these candles are lit. And there's all this kind of almost occult paraphernalia about, like, this is a fantastic way to play D&D. I don't know many D&D players that have this much dedication to Sparkle Motion that they're just going <laughs> to gothically light a whole bunch of candles. Uh, it's also really hard to see your dice with yeah. you know, the lighting you generally have in your house, let alone by candlelight. But The video quality on this movie that's on Amazon Prime and also on YouTube is complete shit. Oh yeah, it's terrible. This is one of the scenes I wish that we had a proper version of this movie because it does look really cool with all the candles in that room. It's a nice atmospheric yeah. look. I, I Like you just said, probably not terribly conducive to playing D&D, but hey, you know what? A for effort. But it doesn't matter anyway, because it's kind of ambiguous as to how they're playing it in the first place. And so then we get this montage, and it is the possibly the strangest montage I have ever seen <laughs> in a film. And that's saying something. I don't know if you had that experience, but I think it was because I had just watched The Greatest American Hero episode first. So I'm like, I got to warm myself up for Mazes and Monsters. I had to pause for a second and remind myself that I was not watching a TV show and this was not its opening theme song uh, yes. montage. Yeah, this montage is, it's the montage of Robbie and Kate becoming a couple, if I'm not mistaken. It's just a montage that's happening in a way that sort of lets us know we really do not care about the emotional development of these characters in this no, capacity. No, so let's just no. try to do it all in a minute and 30 seconds to this strange song and just get the gist that at some point they've started dating. So, okay, fine. That happens. Then we get JJ in his room. So we cut from this romantic sort of montage to JJ contemplating suicide in his dorm room. Yeah, so we do get a brief scene where he goes to Kate's room and says, like, uh, what are we playing? And Robbie answers the door like, oh, what's going on, JJ? Like, uh, I was looking for Kate. Oh, you know, she's in the bathroom. What's going on? Are uh, we playing? Oh, we're, her and I are busy. And then he gets to his room. So I think it's set up that he's jealous. But even with that setup, this contemplation of suicide, I, I've never had whiplash so bad watching a movie because the suicide thing comes out of absolutely nowhere. He goes into his room, sits down to feed his bird, and he just says, you know, there's never been a student that committed suicide. 
Oh, I'll go into Pequod Caverns. Yeah, Boy Genius kills himself. I'll be famous. I read the book hoping it gave some sort of internal monologue to explain this, and it doesn't. He literally just suddenly is like, man, it'd be cool to kill myself. I should go to Pequod Caverns. Yeah. And I just let that go by because I'm still thinking... All right, so this is obviously our Dallas Egbert character, and we know contextually from not the film, but this actual kid's life that he was severely depressed. So, okay, I guess we're just going to assume a certain intertextual understanding. This is one thing I'll say that does really upset me from Ronald Jaff's part and the filmmaker's part. They knew that Dallas Edbert had committed suicide. He he killed himself less than a year after he was found. Uh, there are many details about the case that didn't come public until William Deere wrote his book on it in 1984. But we did know he was depressed. We knew he committed suicide. So, so to throw this part of the story in there so flippantly is just really bad taste. Well, there's a lot of really bad taste when it comes to the representation of mental illness and mental health in general. Mm -hmm. So this is just not even check one on that. We've probably already <laughs> bypassed like three oh, to six God. egregious sort of affronts to the mental health profession. But yeah, we have this kid. We do get this throwaway line from Kate who muses on the fact that could you imagine how hard and isolating and lonely it must be to be 16 in a college and have all these people dating around you when you can't necessarily do that yourself when you're 16 at college? Technically, you can, but it's hard to meet people when there's yeah. that age difference. And also, technically, in a lot of states, a classifiable felony if your fellow college students were to have sex with you and yeah. your 16-year-old body. Like, that's yep. it's legal in some states, but mm -hmm. actually doesn't even matter match the age of consent in most cases no. so that does have to be really isolating to watch your peers sort of split off and date each other and you just want to play your dungeons and dragons game and you're a 16 year old boy so although not exclusively there are certainly sort of asexual sexualities but statistically he probably does want to get some with somebody and that's just not really as accessible to him for many reasons. You hang out with a group of people, they're like, well, none of us can have sex with you? What What are you even doing here then? Get out. Go. I know, story of my life. I'm like, I don't... <laughs> I, except for you, I guess. I don't know why I hang around with you. But I guess it's this like small masochistic side where I mean, yeah, the one person that I just do not want to have sex with. It's that fine. lets me sleep easy at night, really. I don't want to think of the alternative. <laughs> there is something kind of wonderful about the fact that we just discussed each other. So it's fine. <laughs> now... As we go on from his suicide plot, he decides that he's going to throw this kind of baller live action D&D &D game in these caverns as a preliminary send off to his great farewell. Mm. He's going to borrow props for it. He's going to bribe one of the TAs or fellow mm -hmm. students. I wasn't really sure because he didn't seem like a professor from one of his biology labs to borrow the skeleton, Basil was the skeleton's name. Basil was kind of rad. Yeah. And he's going to incorporate this into the LARP. And so everybody goes down into these caverns, or the four of them go down into these caverns. 
and they're looking and searching about and I'm starting to kind of see the development. At first, I'm like, how in the world do you play D&D in a bunch of steam tunnel caves? Yeah. Right? Like, I don't understand. I still don't fully understand how one would go about doing that. But as he sets it up, I can kind of see the promise because they're going around these dark tunnels and Basil the skeleton drops down in front of him real quick with a little flashlight in his mouth and the DM's voice from somewhere in the caverns just says, you have two questions. I'm like, all right, cool. So we've got the DM that's trying to allow for these physical encounters and you would have that kind of call and response like you would around a D&D table. I still think that that's going to be very limited, but it's still kind of a cool idea. I I like what he's trying to bring mm-hmm. to the table. I just don't know how, yeah, that's executed long term. Especially when these bitches split up. (laughs) There was a full-on Kevin in the Woods moment where Dan says, we should split up and and search places. And you just half expect one of them to go, really? Really? Yeah. I think I did that as a viewer for them. (laughs) Like, let's split up. I'm like, really? And this is a really on two levels. One, this isn't a horror movie. And so... Yeah, fine. Um, But within the space of the narrative, they are three college kids that don't know the caves very well. So it might not be that smart on a general safety level to split up and go traipsing about the caves, especially since they've been leaving rice along their way so that they'll be able to find their way back out, implying they don't know these tunnels. It's an odd change in book versus movie, because in the book they don't split up. There is a really interesting detail in the book that I wish had found its way into into the movie, where Dan looks at the wall and they say, like, oh, there's some runes there. Who of us can read them? And Daniel just goes over and he reads them. And it's kind of odd because you're like, okay, are they pretending that they can't read this and only he can? What's the deal? Mm -hmm. In the book, it explains a really fun thing, a really ingenious thing that J.J. did. Uh, One thing in the movie that we don't get about Dan is that he is, uh, his mother is Jewish, his father is not. Knowing this, J.J. found, I believe it's called a, uh, the book calls the Passover Haggadah. Haggadah. Where it will show a side of something, a side of a verse in Hebrew and then a side in English Mm -hmm. and JJ just removed the English side, so he he knew only Dan could read it. And Dan's like, "That ingenious little bastard! That was amazing! That's super fun! That's cute!" Yeah, and that it has that going on in it. As we'll see, the Gorville does show up in the book, and they kill Gorvilles together, as opposed to that weird separate thing where only Robbie sees it, and we get some trademark Tom Hanks like yeah! wailing. For a little time. Yeah, I'm going to have questions about that in a second, then. <laughs> I do you know that when we were watching this, or you, after you had watched it, asked me about the questions that they <laughs> ask the skeleton, and they ask it two questions, as is allowed, and one of them gets a direct response of no. It's sort of, is it evil? No. Will it be helpful? Time will tell. And Benji's like, they get two questions and they get that ambiguous of a response like what the fuck and i'm like dickweed answer it's like yeah welcome to the augury based questions of D &D, because that (laughs) shit tracks (laughs) there there are many reasons sometimes you just can't give your players all the answers right (sighs) then so you're like well yeah i don't know well i guess in that case i probably that would likely be my own dm response in that capacity because if they're like is it helpful 
that's kind of a thing that's up to the players, right? So if they choose to interact with it further, it might be. But if they just don't ever interact with it again, then no, it won't be helpful, right? So I get the time will tell answer is kind of a coded mm-hmm. DM. Like, that kind of depends on you guys. So that, that tracked. <laughs> but... I did not know about the language thing because I did have that question when they went over to start reading on the wall. Yeah. And yeah, I'm like, is what's happening here? <laughs> is there anything written on the wall? I can't tell. And so they're going to split up. And why it's a problem that they split up other than just the safety of it is actually like the D&D logistics. So they know that their dungeon master is hiding slightly adjacent so that he can project his voice and they don't see him. That's going to be incredibly hard for him to do if they go through three separate tunnels. Like, what's the mm-hmm. what's the plan here for your DM? Are you just expecting he's going to have to pick one of them to follow and you've just written yourself out of the game for a temporary little sort of period of time? So yeah. there's a little metagaming that sometimes has to go on in D&D. Sometimes parties split up. But it's easier to do when you're all at a table and you're like, okay, so you hold on for a second. You buddy over here, this is what happens to you. But when you're physically going down three different corridors, there's no way your DM can actually like follow all three of you. So that was just weird. Super weird. Indeed. But yeah, so Tom Hanks goes down yeah, a, yeah. a thing. Goreville, or the maze controller, shouts out, Goreville! What are they meant to do with that? It's not very clear. Tom Hanks, Robbie, he's he has a psychotic break. Uh, that might not be the right term for it, but he has a mental break of some sort. Legit sees the monster and shouts out like, God, tries to cast a spell, fails, stabs it in his mind, and just shouts out, I killed it! I did it! I did it! They all come rushing over like, whoa, what? what? He's like, I, I did it. I have slain the Goreville. Oh. The Goreville. Yes, so the Goreville is not a Dungeons and Dragons monster. Is the Goreville in the book? Is that what she calls it? In yeah. The book? It's in the book, too. Yeah, Goreville. Okay. So apparently, I don't know where she came up with that. The first reference I could find of it was in a 3.5 homebrew edition where a offshoot company had proposed the Gorville in reference to monsters and or mazes and monsters. They said, hey, there's this monster in this, so it'd be a fun tongue-in-cheek reference to sneak it into third edition. It did not make it into fifth edition as of yet. Oh, I think that perhaps the movie it. has been uh. long forgotten or is not enough of a pop culture reference for people <laughs> to be like, a Gorville, like, what the fuck is that? Even for us, that's too much of a deep cut. Come on, man. As far as 3.5 is concerned, a Gorville was a subterranean reptilian humanoid that <laughs> tended to like urban city areas and... <laughs> Other than that, didn't have, you know, a whole lot going for it. Yeah, so he slays it. He sees it visually. So we see what he sees, which is some guy in this Gorville suit made primarily of paper mache, it looks like. A bit there, yeah. Maybe. Which it's funny that you call it made of paper mache, because as they exit the the caverns, uh, JJ says... Oh, yeah, I thought about making some monsters out of paper mache. And then we we then get the thesis statement of the movie when Kate says, no, you didn't need to. The most dangerous monsters are the ones in our mind. Yes. 
Dun, dun, dun. I think it's actually the most frightening monsters are the ones that exist in our minds. Right. But yes. Dangerous also works here, too. Mm-hmm. So we're confirmed, no, there were no other physical monsters there, except for that skeleton who wasn't a monster. He's just a guide. Mm-hmm. And Tom Hanks, he, he might have some monsters in his mind. In the maze of his mind, there are monsters. And he's going to continue on with this in terms of, oh, man, I slayed that thing. And they're like, yeah, yeah, you can you can drop it now buddy. Yeah. You're, you're, go back to Robbie. So they do have their D&D characters that they play. Robbie is the holy man, Perdu. Perdu, a holy man. Which is French for lost, interestingly enough. <laughs> so really on the nose there. Oh, uh, Jeff, you mastermind. <laughs> I don't know how they spell it because when I looked at the spelling of it, it looked different than the spelling for Purdue, but they kept saying Purdue and I was like, well, it's just lost and French. <laughs> and so the holy man cleric type of style of play. And Kate is, I'm trying to remember what she was. She was kind of a sorcerer. So they changed the names a little bit because it's mazes and monsters and not Dungeons and Dragons. So mm-hmm. they've got the holy man and she's sort of this druidic sorceress. JJ was Freelick the Frenetic, I think. I don't know if that was supposed to be then a barbarian or a rogue, but that's what I could gather from mm-hmm. quote unquote frenetic. But yeah, these guys are going to continue on, or at least Tom Hanks is going to continue on as his Purdue persona that he is yeah. embodied and starting to get trapped up in. And they just think he's continuing to fuck with them. There's a scene where Kate comes in, Robbie is studying. Uh, His commitment to the character wavers in some odd ways because he'll call Kate Kate and respond to Robbie. So he's not fully on there yet. But now he's having dreams about the Great Hall, which is a light at the end of a, a tunnel. And I think it's just Tom Hanks speaking with a lower register for the effect. Like, you must be pure, Pardue. A cleric must be pure and celibate. Yeah, not a rule for clerics in <laughs> D&D, actually, yeah, but this seems to be his own personal thing. Yeah, Kay comes in and says, hey, you know, she's DTF in this scene. She's ready to go. And he's like, ah, no, no, I can't. I can't touch you now. I, I'm trying to be celibate and all that. And the interesting difference between this and the book is that Robbie comes to this conclusion after they try to have sex and they're laying on the bed and Kate is more or less just saying, hey, it, it's cool, it happens, no big deal, you know, happens to all the guys at some point. And Robbie's like, huh, I wonder why I'm not getting aroused right now. Uh, I probably need to be celibate. Yeah, so this might be in a weird way a little bit of the possible Dallas Egbert sexuality coming in, but once again, most of the Dallas Egbert stuff seems to be given to JJ, so yeah. that's that's confusing. Yeah, uh, Dallas's sexuality wasn't made public until 1984, so that's something that she would not have had knowledge of at the time. Okay, fair enough. Maybe she's just thinking he's crazy, so crazy people can't get it up. I don't know. It seems like Rona Jaffe logic. <laughs> She's like, oh, well, a character who doesn't want to have sex with my self-insert character? Clearly celibacy is the only thing that that would cause. Yeah. 
But this progresses, and they're all wondering, like, yeah, what the hell? Why is Robbie always in character? Why is he blessing people all the time? He's giving away his possessions. He's acting very holier than thou. They're like, oh, he's just, you know, he's really into the character. Yeah. Whatevs. One of the things that's going to be interesting with his kind of holy man character, when he first slays the Goreville, he gets very upset that he resorted to his dagger first, mm -hmm. that he's a holy man that has all of these spells and protections and wards at his disposal. And yet instead, his first instinct was to slay a monster. And he's going to give a little speech about uh, that. Yeah. And Noted. that was kind of an interesting addition in terms of the worry about not playing the character appropriately, because you sometimes want to play to what the character is going to do in D&D. Even if you as a player might be like, ah, oh, this is a bad idea, <laughs> but my, th this character would do this. Yeah, right? that, and that simplify things a bit, you know. Yeah, I was curious. Um, but since he was also melding with the character a little bit, then it became a slight moment of interest in terms of his own introspection on his quick reaction to violence. They don't do anything with that. But no. <laughs> they start to. So it could have been interesting. Almost interesting, but wasn't. Mm -hmm. Now... At some point, little Tom Hanks is going to get wrapped up into the story of finding the Great Hall. We are also going to learn that his brother in real life, not in the holy man's life, but real life Robbie in the novel, yeah. which is not real life in real life, yeah, whatever. Um, his brother <laughs> had, ran away on Halloween and you're like, OK, well, so maybe this is why he's depressed and anxious and his parents are constantly fighting. And his mother resorted <laughs> to alcoholism because one of their family members has been lost yeah. for an extended period of time. It's like this movie's not making its point very well. In a weird way, it didn't seem like the movie was aware that this might be a stronger reason for the depression and anxiety of Tom Hanks's character. It seemed like it was saying, here's a plot hook reason as to why he would go off in this direction physically to go find mm -hmm. his brother, but still the crux of the mental break is the Mazes and Monsters game. <laughs> it's a very strange thing, but yeah, yeah. it doesn't seem super self-aware of its alternative diagnoses. So he is going to, at some point, be convinced that the Great Hall is a person, his brother Hall, which was actually, that was kind of my favorite thing. Mm -hmm. If there was going to be one choice that I liked, it was <laughs> making the Great Hall a person, because that was kind of cool and unusual. Mm -hmm. He decides that in order to seek the Great Hall, he needs to go to the Two Towers, which he's first going to get from Tolkien's second book, The mm -hmm. Two Towers, and is going to assume thus means the two towers in New York City because Grant University is apparently somehow adjacent to the city. It's close. I think they say it's in Pennsylvania somewhere, so it's not too hard to get to New York City. So he goes on a quest and he's going to end up in New York at night. And there's a couple really great interactions in New York at night. Mm -hmm. One is with some muggers that are like, what do you have there? And he's got his little leather pouch and he holds it up and he's like, it's my spells. <laughs> and they just look at him like, oh shit, what did we just get ourselves into? Like, who is this fucking crazy asshole? And he stabs the monger. He stabs the monger. Okay. I mentioned that there are some fun differences between book and movie. This one I have to share because it's just so fucking crazy. Okay. 
in the movie, it seems like Robbie is just missing for a few days uh, when he goes into New York City. In the novel, it explains Robbie's missing for seven weeks. Wow. And he's been on the streets of New York City for seven weeks. He is emaciated. He has grown, his beard has grown out and all that. And so he's walking around the streets just kind of in a daze most of the time. And then, then this happens. And forgive me, but I have to read a little bit of the book now. Of course you do. The sound of your own voice, by all means. There was a lovely young sprite who came to the street of messages every night and who was the only one who did not seem to fear him. She would look at him and laugh. Her laughter was like that the sound of bells, her hair long, blonde and silky, and she often wore trousers of velvet and shirts of gauze. She looked like a princess of the sprites. She was about 13 years old in appearance, which meant she could be over a 100 years old in the sprite world. That was not old for a sprite. One night he approached her, praying she would not run away. I am Pardue, the holy man, he said. She laughed. <laughs> I've been watching you. You're never going to get a John when you're stoned like that. I cannot speak your tongue, Pardue said, confused and apologetic. Hey, man, don't shit me. You're ripped out of your head. What are these terrors you warn me of? She laughed again. You're cute. I have a weak spot for losers. Come on, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. She took him into a brightly lit eating place, where she bought him coffee and small cakes and some for herself. She was beautiful and kind, and the first who befriended him in the city. Now listen, she said, leaning forward over the table that separated them. There are leather queens and piss freaks and S&Ms, but unless you want to get a real masochist weirdo, nobody is going to want you like this. They think you've been smoking angel dust. Angel dust, Pardue said. How beautiful that sounds. Yeah, well, smoke it after, not before. I'm not afraid of you, but I've got friends in the street, and I'm not going anywhere alone with you. Besides, I think you're harmless. I am harmless, Pardue said, grateful to the understand at least a small amount of what she was saying. I am the highest level of holy man, and I would harm no one who is not evil. This is what you do, she said. The John comes up, and he says something like, how much, and you tell him, and keep your mouth shut from then on. If he asks more or tries to make conversation, make up some name. Don't give him that holy man shit. How much you get? How much what? How much money? Very little, Pardue said sadly. I notice, she surveyed him carefully. You're kind of old for these chicken hawks, but you are cute. Ask him for 20. 20 coins? 20 bucks, Pardue. And don't tell him your name is Pardue. Say you're Paul. Paul, Pardue said. He nodded. My name is Paul. Do I ask first or does he offer first? Usually he asks, she laughed. The small talk is not terrific on the street. Hey, did you ever read Catcher in the Rye? And it goes on from there. Then, Pardue is propositioned by a man on the street. Pardue doesn't understand what's going on. And again, the book of this part of the novel is written from Pardue's point of view because Robbie has lapsed away at this point. Mm -hmm. Pardue just assumes that this guy wants to go eat somewhere. They go to a back alley closet or what have you. And Pardue is confused, turns around and sees the man is naked, fully erect, freaks out and stabs him. Aww. Because he's like worried, like, oh no, a succubus is trying to rape me, and once it does, I will be under its power. Stab. Solid logics. And that's what breaks him out of this state of harduness. And that's when Robbie finally makes the phone call, like, I don't remember what's going on. <laughs> I would say, like, that that is the most crazy difference between book and movie. General differences are just that these kids are fucking a lot. Like, it, it talks about how Robbie and Kate, they fucking, it seems to insinuate that Dan has had sex with over 200 women uh, in his life. 
All right, yeah. That kind of comes across a little bit when eventually Kate and Robbie hook up in the movie right after Pardue breaks up with Kate because he must be celibate. She goes right to Robbie. Dan. Okay, yeah, whatever. Dan <laughs> and is like, yeah, we're better as friends. You and I should fuck instead because I know you have a heart in there. And he's like, yeah, I, I never thought I could love. It's just, I'm just so attractive that... It's it's hard to connect with anyone. You're like, what the fuck, dude? But they hook up. It's fine. Yeah. And Robbie back in New York is becoming yeah increasingly convinced that he just slew Slade slew another Gorville. Gorville. Yeah. Uh, that's been stalking him and makes a phone call. We've got detectives on his case that come and tell his friends. The only thing I know is that if he's in those caverns, he's dead. I'm like, whoa, dude. Like, that's, <laughs> that's something to tell. That's pretty far out. Mazes and Monsters is a far out game. Murder, death, potions, stabbing. A fun note is that the detective is played by the same guy who played the mayor in Jaws. Really? All I know is that Robbie's, if he's down in those tunnels, he's dead. And we cannot close the beaches for the 4th of July. We're a 4th of July town. They are. Yeah. For sure. All the friends yeah. go to New York to try and find Robbie. Because I told Robbie, like, look, hey, look, Robbie, go to go to JJ's place. All right, that, that's a safe place because JJ has this, like, nice place in, like, the Upper East Side. So go there. You're going to be safe. They arrive and Robbie is not there. They're like, well, fuck, we don't know what the hell is going on. JJ just says, let's go up into my apartment and we'll figure this out. And they go up, and his mother has now redesigned his room yet again. You want to talk about this new design of the room? Yes. Oh, my God, I do. What did they... What's this new design? Delicious. All right, so this new design, you walk in, and it's no longer a hospital cold white. Instead, we've got this really great, moody, kind of neon noir, but from the 1930s lighting. I like to call this like Casablanca Outrun. Yeah. It's got green neon lights around the old style Hollywood director's chairs with Bogart written on the back of them around a table. And then his bed has this veil over it, like he's in the jungle and it's some sort of mosquito net. And there's a big picture movie poster of Bogart, and I can only assume it's Casablanca because, once again, the video quality was too degraded. And yeah. so the, the rest seems to be fairly Casablanca-themed, mm -hmm. so I'm assuming that that's what's going on there. It's gorgeous. This isn't a movie that screams out for a 4K restoration, but maybe just, just this scene. Just do this scene. But they congregate in JJ's place, and it takes them way too long to put together that the two towers means the two towers. Yeah. 190 IQ, my pasty Irish ass. Well, I don't know. It's They're trying to work with <laughs> Purdue logics, so who knows? Somehow they rush out to the two towers at around the same time that Robbie gets there. Although, how he gets there. Oh, how he gets there. So... He's down in the sewers, yeah. and he runs into a homeless man. And <laughs> the homeless man at first looks like he's a little bit upset that Robbie might be down there mm. in his space. And yet his mind is swayed a little bit when Robbie goes up to him and says, Hi, my name's Purdue. I'm a holy man. And Whoa. the homeless man Whoa. just responds, 
Uh, I'm the king of France. Wonderful to meet you, your majesty. And just drops down onto a knee. Bows to, down to him. <laughs> and this homeless man's like, all right. All right, kid, you're my kind of batshit crazy. <laughs> yeah, he's like, we can be friends. He's like, maybe don't go up to the top because they'll, they'll catch yeah. you. <laughs> and Robbie's like, okay, but I'm trying to get to the two towers. Can you help me? And the homeless guy's like, yeah, I, actually, I do know how to get there. So he leads the way. It's really great and reminds me that we need to put the Fisher King, Terry Gilliam's Fisher King, on the list because <laughs> there was a hint of it right uh, here. Oh, nice. A far superior mm. movie. Uh, not a high bar to hit, but fair enough. Yeah. They have a really frustrating chase scene where they just can't seem to catch Robbie in like the lobby area of the one of the towers. And then finally they get up onto the roof where Robbie is now like looking over the roof railing, you know, and he, he's not there to shoot a high tension cable across and do a little tightrope walking like better people have done atop mm -hmm. the two towers. Oh no, Robbie, he's gonna fly. Yeah, cause he's got spells to fly. And JJ, the DM is like, you don't though, buddy. Like I'm, I'm the DM, I tell you what you can and can't do and this is not one of those yeah. things that you can't he, do. He's the maze controller. Not in this game. You say you keep saying, you know, DM, it's maze controller, London. That's a way cooler yes, term. Yes, my mistake. Maze controller. The MC. Maze controller. <laughs> the MC yeah. of Eminem. Yeah, yes. I am the maze controller of this game. G game? Yeah, Robbie, game. Yeah, we then get a dramatic close-up. <laughs> and another... Again, this is why I'm like, Oh, Tom Hanks, what what are you doing, man? Because he starts starts to go, what happened? I can't remember what's going on. I don't know what he's trying to do here. If it's meant to be, like, I'm distressed. Pure anguish, I, man. Uh, I don't, it's so strange. It's just very strange. They come and they console him. And they're like, okay, it's cool, man. It's cool. Let's let's walk downstairs away from the edge of this very high building and just go home. Cut to, I believe, a month later, something like that. A whole bunch of time later. Yeah, I guess a few months in the in advance because yeah, because Kate's written a novel because she is Rona Jaffe. Yeah. Yeah, cause, well, okay, fun fact, apparently Rona Jaffe wrote this novel very quickly because she thought that mm -hmm. someone else was going to try and write a similar story when Dallas Egbert's disappearance was such big news. Like, I, some trivia pages said something like, she wrote it in three days, which is... Yeah. Uh, you know what? If you can, if you can knock that out... Yeah, be quick on the uptake yeah. if you're going to be that exploitational. <laughs> Uh, JJ's decided he's going to become the head of uh, theater arts at his college. And Dan, like, he stopped raging against the machine, and now he is with the machine, and he's just going to run a computer company like his parents wanted him to. And they're driving to Rob's place, and they meet his mom. And his mom's like, oh, hi, kids. Hey, it's good to see you. Uh, yeah, you can you can go see, go see uh, Robbie if you want to. Look, I know you played the game, and you didn't know that Robbie was a fragile kid, so it's not your fault. It's cool. It's not your fault. It's totally their fault. 
It was, and it wasn't at the same time. It was also weird for the mom to say, where it was like, I don't blame you. And you're like, okay, bitch, I never said that I thought you did. <laughs> but it, it wasn't really their fault. Like, tons of people play D&D. It's not their fault that one had a disassociative break that was completely unrelated to yeah, the game. Yeah, I guess you could say that, like, had it not been their M&M group, it would have been another M&M group. At any rate, they head out, and they... They see Robbie hanging out by the lake. They're like, Robbie, what's up, man? Looking good. Good to see you. And he says, oh, Freelick. Oh, Gossamer. How are all of you? It is I, Pardue. They're like, oh, oh, Robbie. Robbie, no, no, no. Stop. Stop with this, Robbie. Has someone cast a spell of forgetfulness upon you? I am Pardue. The whole Freelick, you are. You live. Someone raised you. So it's badgering home the point. Robbie has gone bye-bye. He's not coming back. He ain't coming back. There is no Robbie. There is only Pardue. He thinks that he's staying with an innkeeper and his wife (laughs) that he pays with a magical regenerating coin every day. And he wants to continue the quest, and everybody looks at him with sadness in their eyes, and then they decide to play one last game. I know that we don't have Dr. Michelle Vaughn with us on this one, but I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to feed fantasies like this. I'm I'm told that's bad. Eh, the only reason to have friends like this around is to feed their fantasies. <laughs> to continue on in the dedication of Sparkle Motion <laughs> into that quest into the forest. But yeah, it seemed like an odd choice that they're like, yeah, we'll we'll continue to play mm, this way. And so they head off and they play the do you want to take this last line? Well, I just know the very last line, which is that we saw nothing but the death of hope and the loss of our friend. It's like, whoa, uh, uplifting ending. Yep. Uplifting. Yep. Although I did forget to mention that the one really cool shot in this entire film oh, okay. is when Tom Hanks's character is coming up to the two towers and he's on his little quest mm-hmm. and the camera is going to focus on the church, this sort of chapel architecture. And for a second, it's going to look like this beam of light is just shining down on the church, like this holy sort of symbol. And then as the camera pans up, you realize that it's not in a beam of light. It's actually sitting between or against the skyline that is nestled between the two towers. Very nice. Yeah. It was the coolest shot I've ever seen involving the two towers. And that's saying something in this movie that is otherwise horrendously shot. <laughs> yeah. So it really stood out. Those scenes of like him on the streets of New York just like to me scream of stolen shots. They didn't get any permits. They were like, no, it's just a public place. Just have have Tom like walk around and we'll film him and hopefully get our shots that we need before someone says, like, hey, it's the guy from Bosom Buddies. What's he doing here? This was his first feature film though. Mm-hmm. So there, there's that. This was the first thing he starred in. Everything else before that had been TV shows. Yeah. And one film that he was not a feature in, but apparently is about a serial killer that hunts down brides that came out in 1980. Oh, all right. Something about, like, I know when you're alone, which seems counterintuitive to a serial killer who focuses <laughs> on newlyweds. But uh, I have not seen this film. No. So. So. That's mazes and monsters. Now, now let's get into the contextual stuff. Time to stop being nice, and it's time to get real. Again, like I said at the very top, 
The worst thing about this movie is how it treated a real-life event. And there are elements that they can't be blamed for not knowing. William Deere, the private investigator who found Dallas, the real-life kid that inspired all of this, he kept a lot of details private for a few years after the fact, per Dallas's wishes, even four years after Dallas had committed suicide. The whole truth is even crazier, and I'm honestly shocked there's never been a more accurate movie made about this, because the story itself is kind of nuts. So I'll paint in broad strokes here. Dallas Egbert was a kid from Dayton, Ohio, who was attending uh, Michigan State University in Lansing, Michigan. He disappeared on August 15th, 1979, and... His friends waited a few days before they contacted anyone, so by the time that Deer got the call from Dallas's parents, Dallas was already missing for about a week. William Deer heads into Lansing, and as he goes along, you're like starting to really wonder, like, okay, seriously, what the hell happened to this kid? Because he goes into great detail on all the leads that he takes. He contacts all the teachers that knew Dallas, all the kids that knew Dallas. He finds out what Dallas was getting up to, wherever he went, and... He cannot come up with anything. They get some leads that the few kids that knew him knew that he liked to play Dungeons and Dragons with them. And that the kids, speaking anonymously, tell William Deere, uh, yeah, we would go down into the tunnels. And it turns out at Michigan State University, there are all these old steam tunnels where pipes and wires run all across the campus. And they're very easy to get into. And this actually made it difficult for William Deere to get official permission to go down to the tunnels to search for what he had a feeling was going to be Dallas's body because they did not want to admit that these tunnels make security at the buildings on campus absolutely worthless because anyone could go into these tunnels and just crawl their way to the basement of the girls' dormitory anytime that they wanted to. So... Actually, getting to go down there was very difficult for him. And so he made a really big deal about trying to get the university to open the tunnels up. When the press asked him, why do you want to go down to those tunnels? There were many answers he could have given. Like he could have said, I think Dallas's body is down there. Or I think that, you know, him and some kids were doing drugs down there. But because the investigation was still going on, he couldn't give away any personal details about what may have actually happened. And the only thing that he could say was that, well, I, I, you know, we heard that Dallas played Dungeons and Dragons down there. There might be some evidence down there related to that. And that was really all that he could say about it. And the press just latched onto that. And so that's really how the whole craze about like, oh, oh, Dungeons and Dragons, that's the issue here. That's what was going on. Throughout the entire book, it is very clear that William Deere understood Dungeons and Dragons was just something that Dallas was doing to cope with his life. It was not a thing causing him any struggles. If anything, it was the few things keeping him sane. That and the drugs that Dallas was doing to also cope with his loneliness and stress at school. Like I said earlier, Dallas, super gifted kid, college sophomore at age 16, but he didn't have any friends, didn't have very much in the way of social skills was kicked out of some Dungeons & Dragons groups because they thought he was too weird, which if you're kicked out of a D&D group for being too weird, that's got to feel really shitty. I don't know, we've kicked some people out of our D&D groups over yeah. the years. You assholes. Mostly because they're not fun, not because they're too weird. Oh, but... okay. All right. Yeah. Well, there, there you go. People who want to play lawful good characters 
and stick to that tend to be no fun in campaigns. They just, whatever the cockblock equivalent of <laughs> D&D fun is for the rest of us. Makes sense. Get out of here with your morality. Eventually they do get down there. They search the tunnels. They find all sorts of beer cans, smoked joints. You know, they, clearly this is a normal thing for the kids to be doing down there. And then they find this alcove and it's this really creepy room where there's a table and a paper mache head. And in that same alcove, they also found discarded crackers, blanket, that sort of thing that they find out later on. That's what Dallas left behind. And so they just keep searching for this and they send the word out to enough people. And eventually, of all things, he gets a call from Dallas who says, yeah, Mr. Deer, I, I know that you've been looking for me. I, I think I need you to to come and get me. And William Deere has like been on the case for a month at this point, chasing every lead that he has and nothing is coming up. And as you read the book, you are really like kind of just drawn into it. You're like, where the hell is this kid? Dallas says, okay, you can come and find me. Go to Motor City, Louisiana. And they're like, what the Motor City, Louisiana? How the hell did he get there? And he didn't reveal where he found Dallas until he wrote the book. So for years, the whole world was at a loss for like where the hell this kid actually had ended up. They go down, they pick him up, and they bring him home. And then him and Dallas sit down, and he's like, okay, kid, you got to level with me. What the hell happened? Dallas says, look, man, I was going crazy. I was trying to commit suicide. I put together some chemicals. I went down to that alcove in the tunnels. Took it, tried to kill myself. It didn't take. I woke up feeling like crap. I didn't want to go back to classes, so I went to the house of the only other gay kid that I knew on campus, and I just stayed there and got high for about a week. And then word got out that they were looking for me, so I went to a different house, stayed there, got high for a week. Went to another house. Eventually, the heat got too bad. I took a bus to Chicago, and by then it was national news. So I said, fuck it. Uh, let me go somewhere else. They put me on a bus to New Orleans. I get there, and I want to get out of it. So then I go to the small town, Motor City, Louisiana, about an hour outside of New Orleans. And then I just do some you know, yard work for a few weeks before... I realize I probably need to come back. And William Deere is just like, just shocked by how bizarrely mundane all of this is. He wasn't fighting Gorvilles. He was just mowing some lawns. No, wasn't fighting Gorvilles. He was just wanting to get away from the pressures of school. And this kid had gone through his entire childhood with his parents pushing him hardcore. Like we see Daniel's parents do in the movie. Like we said, there are just elements of Dallas spread among Dan, JJ and Robbie. And basically the stress of all that had finally caught up to him and that's what broke him. And he had tried to commit suicide a second time at some point, I think using quaaludes when he got down to New Orleans and that didn't take either. So finally that's where he's like, okay, gave up on all of that and finally wanted to come back. So after he was found, William Deere was asking him, okay, so what the hell was the, th the deal with the cork board in your room? What was that all about? He says, oh, well, that was a diagram of all the alcoves that are in the steam tunnels. And if you know all the alcoves and you look at them, you'll notice there was an alcove that was not marked. That's the one that I was in or where they would have found me had I successfully committed suicide. He's like, okay, pretty cryptic. He's like, yeah, I know, right? Got a badass. William Deere's like, Holy shit, kid. That 
that was driving us crazy. It's like, I know, right? That was kind of what I was thinking would happen. Like, people might go crazy trying to figure all this out. William Deere, oddly enough, really respects him for this, that he kind of wanted to send someone on a wild goose chase in a really strange way. And he says, he explains in the book, that's why the book is called The Dungeon Master, because Dallas wanted to be a dungeon master in his D&D groups, but because he had he lacked social skills, couldn't get a group together of his own, he never had a chance to. So in a way, he made his own version of the game that sent people trying to pick up every clue they could, search under every nook, nook and cranny to discover the secrets. And they remained very good friends after he was found. And William Deere, you can really tell in his book, cared deeply about Dallas and really wanted to see him go on to make something of himself in the world. Dallas kept talking about, like, I just want to work at a computer store. My parents want me to go to college and, and, and get like crazy degrees. I, I just want to work at a computer store and, and sell computers. Computers are awesome. I just want to do that. And he didn't even want to live with his parents after he was found because he couldn't handle them. Actually stayed with his uncle for a very long time in Dallas, not very far from where uh, William Deere lived, and spent a lot of time with hanging out with William Deere and like actually advising him on some cases that William Deere got some good advice from him on and found out this kid's like really good at deduction. I wonder if I can like convince him to be a private investigator himself. He could kick ass at it. However, he eventually moved back with his parents and moved back to Dayton and went to Wright State University. And unfortunately, his parents were just pressuring him more and more. Uh, William Deere said he got some calls from Dallas uh, where he, you know, the Dallas was just telling him like, they're still doing it, man. I cannot handle this anymore. They just keep pressure me even after all of this they will not let up and about a year to the day after he was found dallas uh, put a gun to his head pulled the trigger and ended his own life and it was just really sad to read about all of that and it's kind of what made the odd nature of this book and movie just offensive to me and again like i said there are a lot of details that no one knew about outside of the investigation for many years, so they couldn't have understood it. But even after that, I haven't really seen anything in the 80s that tries to address what really caused Dallas to disappear and what drove him to the breaking point, or try to address it in any real way. Because the 80s, as we have seen, and I'm and as London, you will talk about, were the time of the satanic panic and a time of ignoring the real problem that many of these kids had and instead focusing on something completely different. So if you want to elaborate on that. Yes. The satanic panic. I, I get really excited about the satanic panic and the way that I kind of get excited about just the clusterfuck of how D and D was treated in the 1980s. It's in a certain retroactive rose tinted lens because during the time it is absolutely horrible and horrifying that mass hysteria functioned in this way as it has always been historically horrifying when mass hysteria functions in certain ways the salem witch trials are very very similar to the satanic panic of the 1980s more people are familiar with the salem witch trials than they are the 1980s satanic panic and it started out a very similar way with a couple of people that started to get concerned that something was amiss that 
there were dark forces at work in the general civil population, and so they just started accusing things around them as being quote-unquote satanic. And why things were quote-unquote satanic instead of witchcraft is that Satanism itself really starts to percolate in at least American subconsciouses around the late 1960s. So two big events are going to happen in the 1960s. There's a lot of multifaceted things that lead to the satanic panic. So this is by no means exclusively this, but these are some big points. Is that LeVay is going to write the Satanic Bible and then found the Church of Satanism in the 1960s. I believe 1966 is sort of the official founding date of the Church of Satan. And Satanism kind of as a general type of spiritual practice. Not that there weren't people who subscribed to similar philosophies before, but LeVay is really going to kind of solidify this a little bit in a doctrine type of way. And then Charles Manson's going to hit the scene, and he's going to have that whole crime spree Tate murders that are going to happen in 1969. And so the end of the 60s are seeing what they see as these kind of evil connected things. And Manson liked to talk about Satan a lot, and so that sort of was a little generated thing. And then, strangely enough, we get The Exorcist in, was it 1973? You mean that movie that made by the director of Killer Joe? Yes, exactly. William Friedkin, in order to tell his exorcist tale, is going to take the Ouija board. And the Ouija board, <laughs> interestingly enough, was never associated with demons or devils prior to the exorcist. So the exorcist is going to be a pop culture genesis spot for associating the Ouija board with potential evils. There were spirit boards used during spiritualism for sure to try to contact the dead, usually loved ones and whatnot. Yet the idea that something demonic might grab hold and manifest itself through the Ouija board, we really get that right here with Willem Friedkin and the Exorcist in the 1970s. So the Exorcist is by no means here going to start any sort of satanic panic in the traditional sense. But what it is going to do is it's going to lay some foundations in regards to the fear that there could be tools or objects or performances that the youth could do in their normal day-to-day -day lives that could perhaps invoke or conjure demonic or satanic activity. And things just kind of start augmenting from there. There's going to be a lot of counterculture movements that come out in the 1970s leading into the 80s. And once we hit the 1980s, we get this point of a return to strict moral conservatism. And this is not the first time, nor will it be the last time we talk about the Reagan era. I think it came uh... up in Clue. <laughs> and it's also the tail end of the Cold War. So you get a lot of people that are very concerned. They're very anxious and they're trying to re return to a lost semblance of the nuclear family of religious moral values that had prevailed seemingly in the 1950s and the early 1960s. The 1950s and 60s have their own stuff, the dark undercurrents that go on, but there's just this ideal <laughs> right, that we could perhaps return to this moral golden age of something. And there were a lot of, yeah, things that seemed to be counter to that. 
some of the different early accusations that suffered under the satanic panic, daycares were weirdly one of the first things to take a fall. So there were a couple of cases of people accusing daycare centers of being satanic practitioners and worshipers that were sexually abusing and harming the children. This turned out to be false allegations across the board, but there were a lot of people that were harmed by these allegations that went to prison for a little while. Because what happens when you ask leading questions to children, (laughs) this also became a landmark thing in both psychology and in the way that the police and detective force question children in criminal cases is that they asked them all of these leading questions and they would ask it again and again until they got the answers that they wanted until these kids almost started to believe that this had actually happened to them. This is also where we get this influx of repressed memories becoming a a pop cultural phenomenon. Everybody coming forth and sort of saying, I remember when I was a child and a Satanist tried to sacrifice me and whatnot. (laughs) There's a lot of interesting sociology work that looked into this at the time and after to try to find if there were any accurate claims during the satanic panic. And by and large, they haven't been able to find this prevailing idea of ritual sacrifice. And yet you could find it everywhere. People got really concerned the children were going to be sacrificed, that their youths were going to be sexually assaulted that their souls were somehow getting corrupted by Satan. Mm -hmm. But the really big, important, I suppose, pop cultural phenomenon or media release that is going to factor into all of this, or really actually set it off in the first place, is a little book published in 1980 called Michelle Remembers. Uh... Now, this is a book that is marketed as a non-fictional memoir co-written by a woman named Michelle Smith and mm. her then-psychiatrist, later husband, so a little bit of ethical violation there, yeah. but whatever. Yeah. And uh... the psychiatrist's name was Lawrence Padster, and he was a Canadian psychiatrist. And she could swear there was something that she needed to tell him, but she couldn't quite remember what. After 600 hours of hypnosis or something of that nature, suddenly Padster was able to have her scream and cry and tell her entire experience at the hands of this satanic cult that apparently included these memories of her as a child where they would sacrifice these babies and rub (laughs) the body parts of sacrificed children all over her and whatnot. Now, Padster would go on tour for this book across Canada and the U.S. This is actually where we get the term satanic ritual abuse coined. So Padster is the one who first came up with and delivered that term onto us This set off a string of the aforementioned sort of copycat type of narratives. One is going to come from a woman named Laurel Rose Wilson, who wrote a similar memoir called Satan's Underground. And we're going to get a whole slew of this generation in psychiatry publishing on the concept of repressed memories. This was something that even Anton LaVey, the founder of the Church of Satan, when initially there was some accusations that they were the Satanists, 
he actually sued them for libel because he's like, yeah, we, we really don't want any part of this bullshit. <laughs> so not even the Satanists yeah. were actually taking claim to what was rumored and spread about. But one of the really interesting things about the tales that Michelle remembers tells us this idea of underground networks that the cults of Satanism was so conspiratorial that not only were they an underground society, they were literally underground. There were these tunnels and network systems. I don't know what said Satanists would be using these underground tunnels for, but it's a cool image, so I'm going to allow it. Uh, but the, the tunnels and the underground nature become fun and interesting in terms of how that then ties back into this media mythos that we get with Dungeons and Dragons and how so many of them attribute this playing of D&D in these underground network tunnels is all kind of just combined and mixed together with the satanic underground cult nature of things. It's a little bit of a collision here, a mashup of all of the satanic ideology and the underground tunnel network of it. So that becomes kind of fun, but a little bit more harrowing when we think of the fact that this was actually a widely prevailing paranoia in real life among the population. That, that gets a little less fun. Yeah. But yeah, we get this whole churning clusterfuck of anxiety and fear and moral panic about the youth of America. And then D&D hits the scene. Oh, that business. D&D, as mentioned, the original version comes out in 1974, only in booklet form. And so that was a little less popularized. It slowly grew in popularity. It had a little bit more sort of freeform stuff based on war games. And our 1977 is going to see the advanced D&D published. And the second edition's actually not going to come out until 1989. So what we're really working with here during this 80s stuff is going to be, yeah, the advanced copy and the OD&D. Mm -hmm. And in these, they were heavily based on sword and sorcery, and thus there were mentions of demons and witches and sorceresses and magic. Parents started to get a hold of these pamphlets and these books, and their children were playing at being witches. They were using magic. They were fighting demons. This was some satanic stuff, right? Churches started to get up in arms that the children were somehow yeah, interacting in this cult-like manner. There was also a lot of artwork that have always been incorporated into D&D material. This artwork would be super revised for the 1989 version of D&D, specifically in response to the bad press that Dungeons & Dragons got during the 1980s. There was a lot of try to PR cleanup, and one of the big things was for the second edition, they've removed demons and devils, they've removed any sexually suggestive artwork, Aww. and there are a couple of spells and stuff. So second edition is a direct response to try to balance itself out with its satanic reputation, which is kind of interesting. Third edition is going to come out in 1997. They're going to be like, yeah, fuck y'all. We're putting this back in. <laughs> but the the second edition, yeah, for from 1989 to 1997 is... It's not cleaner, but it's different in the type of mythology that you will encounter, mm -hmm. which is very interesting from a D&D &D historical perspective. 
No, yeah, when you have somebody like Dallas Egbert, who all of a sudden it looks like might have lost his mind going in and playing D&D in the tunnels, this only for a lot of conservative, morally panicked America was just hardcore proof right, that D&D corrupts the youth. This would continue. We did watch, in conjunction with this, The Greatest American Hero <laughs> around that same year as Mazes and Monsters would have their own spin on Dungeons and Dragons called Wizards and Warlocks. Yeah, and it came out in 1983. So, yeah, on the coattails of, Ma later. of, of Mazes and Monsters about a, a student at a university who goes missing. The weird twist this episode takes is that this kid is apparently the son of Saudi royalty. Yeah, he's a prince. He's a prince, apparently. And he goes missing. And I think it turns out that some people are trying to kill the kid or something. Yeah, so there's actually assassins after his father and his family, except for his father's got really great security. So they're like, well, let's go after his kid because his kid's just a college student and doesn't have a bodyguard. So this should be easy. Right. So that's kind of the setup. And so there's this double layer thing where assassins are after this kid, but he's actually kind of evading them because he's playing Dungeons and Dragons. Well, Griffins and Gargoyles. We should probably contextualize that the uh, the greatest american hero is a little 1980s television <laughs> show about a high school teacher that sees aliens yeah is visited by aliens okay. one day in a field who give uh -huh. him this superhero suit i'm with you and okay. some instructions all right all right good premise and then that same night he loses the instructions oh. so he's left with this superhero suit and the demand that he do something with it most of the show is him teaming up with this FBI agent to just be terrible at being a superhero in this suit because when he flies, he always crashes into yeah. stuff or he gets <laughs> caught into trees because he doesn't know how to use it. Yeah. He lost the fucking instructions. So it's sort of a tongue in cheek type of superhero thing. He gets called into the case to try to figure out by this kid's father that he's worried that his son is missing. And so he goes to the college campus with this uptight FBI agent and slowly learns about the game of wizards and warlocks and how this kid yeah, is probably just in the steam tunnel somewhere. So they carry over the steam tunnel type yeah, of there are tunnels idea. Again. And the episode leans really heavily into the idea that the game players cannot separate their game characters from their real lives because very often they have to be addressed by the right uh, name and also the people addressing them have to be uh, a certain rank or so forth and so on. I mean, you'll probably remember, speaking of ranking, ranks, uh, how do the ranks work the in levels. this? Well, I was actually going to, I'm going to... Correct and or push back a little bit that this episode is saying that people can't separate themselves from their characters. I actually think that ultimately the Greatest American Hero episode is a really loving portrayal of Dungeons and Dragons. Okay, all right. And that's because at first, when they're approaching these kids and starting to ask questions, 
about this missing kid, the others assume that why they're asking is because they are playing the game. Oh, and so at first okay. the dungeon master is like giving him all this shit. Like, I'm not just going to tell you that. Like, I'm not just going to tell a second level troll that, you know, oh, where, you know, where's the Midgard River? Like, please. When the FBI agent shows him his badge, that's when he turns around and gets all apologetic. He's like, I'm so sorry. You look exactly like the psych professor here on campus oh, yeah. who plays this game. <laughs> Um, and so I figured we were playing the game still. And that's when he kind of breaks out of character. And they're going to run into a couple of people like that where the, uh, or the, this duo kind of learn that the best way to get information about where this kid might be is to sort of play the game because most of the people only have so much information, but they have it in game terms. So they realize he hasn't been kidnapped yet he's hiding in this space that only the dungeon master knows the dungeon master has been kidnapped so the only way to find him is to play the game and the only way to play the game is to get into character and ask these other kids like where he might be oh. so it's a D&D or Wizards and Warlocks saves the day because them learning the rules and how to play mm -hmm. let them find him yeah his love and interest so, in the show yeah, is... there's no break from reality or anything the love interest in the show is constantly reading the manuals and she's the one who's like really deducing what's going on yeah, so she's she's great. She's the greatest American hero's wife, I believe. Oh, okay. And she gets really into this D&D &D <laughs> Wizards and Warlocks thing, and she's reading the rule book. And it was another just really hilarious representation of D&D &D rules, which I will admit is, is pretty spot on, because she's like, wow, I just, I don't know how these kids remember all this stuff. Like, look at this. A troll can cross a body of water only if it has salt in it and it has been blessed by the dagger of Elithid or, you know, whatever. <laughs> I'm like, no, that's that's fair. Like, yeah. that's totally how D&D rulebooks work. It's just, there's, there's always these, like, everything seems to have a rule, but then an exception. Mm -hmm. And you have to kind of remember all of them because it's like, oh, if you're fighting a ghoul then elves are so ghouls can generally paralyze players unless you're an elf because ghoul bites they don't paralyze elves but ghast bites do and so it's like this whole <laughs> thing yeah so that whole oh. breakdown of like there's so many rules and you have to know them backwards and forwards like yeah. at least somebody does right was quite accurate but one of the weird things is that yeah they started to do this level thing where at first one of them sits down is like, oh, like I would even tell a sage, I would have to drop back down to slayer level or like these weird things where it seemed like the leveling was not numerical, but that somehow you were first a warlock and then if you got promoted, you became a wizard and how these like kind of class distinctions or what we know as different classes in D&D &D from second edition on are like, how, how are these different levels? So it turns out, so I did some research into this because once again, I was not an OD&D player, but the history of leveling in D&D &D fascinated me. And as it turns out, OD&D and Advanced D&D used this type of leveling in which you did level up in type that you were. Huh. One second, I have oh, she's got... an example of this. Yes, I have my notes. We're now bringing the notes out, ladies and gentlemen. I loved this. So, <laughs> for example, let's say you were a paladin. If you were a level one, you were a gallant. Then you upgrade to keeper. 
protector, defender, warder, guardian, chevalier, justicar, car, justy, <laughs> I don't actually know how to pronounce that. And then at ninth level, you become a paladin. And then you start accruing levels at that. So then you become a paladin 10 or a paladin 11. Wizards work the same way, but I think they become a wizard at a different set level. And then they start accruing just like the wizard numbers after that. I found this very fascinating. And so, yes, there was a time in which a warlock was just a lesser wizard that you would level up to wizard. And it was around second edition that they began to change this leveling style system, make things like warlock and sorcerer its own class, wizard its own class, and then just kind of give you levels from the beginning to kind of work your way up as a number but that uh yeah american hero episode was actually way more accurate there were times in which they seemed to use different things like they would say like oh a troll to an elf and that isn't accurate but the classes in terms of being actually levels in the original edition those were surprisingly accurate so I have played D&D for a really long time, and I did not realize that until the deep dive. So that was really cool. Also worth mentioning is that Bob Saget is in it, and he looks adorable because he's like 26 years old in this thing. He is. He's a little rook. A little baby Bob Saget. uh, His level (laughs) in this episode. And then, of course, we've got the recent D&D-inspired episode in Riverdale, Griffins and Gargoyles. Okay, I was trying to remember which one this was. trope. (laughs) Go ahead. Yeah, there is a trope of just kind of having this Dungeons and Dragons, mazes and monsters, wizards and warlocks, griffins and gargoyles. <laughs> it never ends. How many it combinations can we yeah, come up the, with? The Riverdale is great because it plays off of the satanic panic a lot. It makes a lot of homage references to it. The thing that's great about Riverdale's griffins and gargoyles is that Not only is it playing off of these tropes, it also excuses itself from becoming just a perpetual part of the D&D is satanic and evil narrative because they make a deliberate point to have one of the characters say diegetically in the space of the screen, isn't this just like D&D or Dungeons and Dragons? And another character is like, nah, man, (laughs) Dungeons and Dragons is da-da-da-da-da. Griffins and Gargoyles seems to be just specifically localized to Riverdale, like some sort of strange homebrew thing that was dreamed up by some sort of maniac that's trying to kill us all. Awesome. Okay, now that we've established that, moving on. Yeah, now that we're like telling you, no, we're not just perpetuating the Dungeons and Dragons thing. We're like making fun of the history of the satanic panic, but like we're giving it a feasible reason that like, no, no, D&D isn't evil, but Griffins and Gargoyles, like it might actually be satanic. This is some scary shit, man. Yeah, much like Mazes and Monsters, it doesn't seem like dice is is a very big thing in Griffins and Gargoyles. Cause yeah, nor is it in the Wizards and Warlocks episode. Yeah, what the hell, guys? Use the <laughs> dice. Come on, it's important. So, yeah, I mean, Benji and I were talking about this a little bit before in terms of it's very understandable that filming a bunch of kids sitting around a table rolling dice, or you know, adults <laughs> as well, sitting around a table and rolling a bunch of dice. <laughs> Not that cinematically captivating. So I get that you want them moving around. You want them doing stuff. There are LARPs, like live action role-playing games that exist. They're generally, you could base them off d and I guess. I just don't know fully how they're 
played. I've really wanted to get into LARPing. I have a friend who's into it who promises to bring me into the world, but I haven't fully experienced the LARP yet. And there's still something about it that I'm kind of missing, I think, Mm. in terms of the actual play strategy, like how that actually works, where you just kind of agree that you're this person and there seems to be maybe a dungeon master that sets little spatial quests. But yeah, in terms of how that actually plays out has always been curious to me. And it's like that in these episodes as well, that at least with wizards and warlocks they seem to provide a semi-structure in that it's just a glorified game of hide and seek in which everybody picks a card that determines their role and the urchin is the one that they're all searching for the one who drew the urchin card who is our prince and so he goes and he hides and everybody seems to be looking for him this is not a game of D, it's a game of hide and seek <laughs> It seems fun. I I don't have a problem with it. But yeah, it's not Dungeons and Dragons. So it's interesting that so many cinematic forms seem to want to root themselves as a Dungeons and Dragons reference, but they don't seem to actually have their games carry out at all like D&D. Yeah. I, I do remember. So this was years ago at this point, but my mother came to town to visit at a time where we had a standing D&D game and I was not the DM of this one. I was a player. Yeah. And I mentioned to her like, oh, so that I don't have to like, you know, cancel or not be there. Do you want to come along and just like watch? Or I think she volunteered to come watch us or something of that nature. Cause I'm like, it's not going to be super interesting, but you know, like you're welcome to. And she lived through all of the satanic panic of the D&D stuff. So she was still a little curious, like, I, I've heard weird things about D&D and that <laughs> she, so she was very, I think, interested to see what all this fuss was about. Right. And I think she got bored pretty quickly when she found <laughs> out that it was just a bunch of us sitting around a table in like the bright light. Uh. And we have all these dice and we're crunching numbers because this was also 3.5 that we were playing. And I also play fifth edition now, but 3.5 is just notoriously a lot more just like rules and mechanics crunchy uh. than fifth edition. So like we were really just like, yeah, crunching those numbers, working out those battle tactics, like arguing rules. And she's like, so this is what you guys do for fun, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, yeah, like you don't think Satan's gonna come and, I, <laughs> and join us here heard, at our table because we're arguing about numbers. I've heard many stories of parents who immediately saw through the bullshit of the satanic panic the second they sat down and actually watched their kids play Dungeons and Dragons because they're like, Wait, are you gonna light some incense and do a sacrifice of some sort? Uh no, we're going to roll for dexterity. <laughs> Why would we make a sacrifice? That doesn't figure into this at all. It should, though. It'd make D&D so much more fun. <laughs> and they just watch this for a little bit. They're like, oh, this is just nerdy kids crunching some numbers and making up goofy names. Oh, okay. And sadly, not enough parents had that open mind experience to it, which is why we got what we got with the Satanic Panic, I feel. I do really like the roleplay component of Dungeons & Dragons. So it's not just crunching numbers. 5th edition is a lot better mm-hmm. with the roleplay aspect. But yeah, once again, I just don't know how... You would need a very inventive DM to take it into a LARP spot, I guess. Because 
I just don't know how many activities there would be. I suppose if it was some sort of treasure hunt or slow dungeon crawl, then yeah, maybe. But yeah, you, you play D&D because you need like the space of the imagination yeah. to actually have these things interact and they just can't if you're just like in a field you could put down a blanket and a table out in a field and roll your dice Mm -hmm. but yeah this trope developed in tv and movies that people just dash about in caves (laughs) and robes with no seeming purpose but it is more cinematic as is playing by candlelight that's that's what i was thinking that it just developed out of cinematic need you can't make a point about this being a dangerous game if all the kids do is roll dice and talk for six hours (laughs) there's no way to make a dramatic montage out of a kid just hanging out in the basement that amount of time which is i feel why Anytime we see an accurate representation of D&D in cinema and television, it's in brief snippets. An honorable mention should go to uh, E.T., which I never noticed this when I was a kid watching that movie. But yeah, uh, the main character's older brother and friends are playing D&D at the very start of that movie. Oh, really? I forgot about that. Yeah. I'd have to go back yeah, and watch and it's, E.T. Yeah, and it's just there's no judgment passed on the kids for playing D&D. They're just hanging out, eating pizza drinking soda and playing D and and Elliot, the main character, he's like, guys, I want to play. I want to, I want to get in on this campaign. Elliot's like ready to go. He's got his character sheets and his, his like Aww. own dice, like ready to go. Like, come on, I want to play. And they're like, screw you, you little kid. Get out of here. Oh, that's so sweet and heartbreaking at the same time that he didn't get to play. Yeah. And that's the only time we see it in the movie, but it is contemporary to the Mazes and Monsters time period. Here's Spielberg, the legit filmmaker, is like, yeah, we're just going to have him play D&D. There's, there's nothing weird about that. They're just kids playing the game, uh, which kind of takes us to Stranger Things. Yes, Stranger Things. The most accurate representation at the beginning, the very first pilot episode yeah. that I have seen of early stages of D&D. Uh, so great. <laughs> I particularly liked where they're rolling their little dice and one of them gets called up, Mike gets called up by his mom he has to run to the top of the stairs. She's like, people got to go home. And he's like, I've been planning for this all week. How was I supposed to know like, that it was going to take 10 hours? And she's like, you've been playing this for 10 hours? He's like, God, mom. And then he goes back down into the basement. I was like, yeah, that's that's accurate. Oh. <laughs> you, can, you can play for a really long time oh. if you have a dedicated little crew. Lovely. But yeah, to contextualize this a little bit, Stranger Things is a Netflix original series that came out in 2016, and with it, we're going to get a little bit of an initial setup premise, similar to Mazes and Monsters, where you have four friends that play D&D. And that's where the comparison kind of (laughs) stops. Instead of having one of the characters break into some sort of psychosis because D&D makes you go crazy, Uh. we're going to have an inverse of this premise in which the world around them is a clusterfuck of inverted reality. The reality around them is actually going to be filled with the supernatural and monsters and monstrosity. And these four kids, because of their Dungeons & Dragons prowess, are the ones that are in the position to save the day because they understand the mechanics of this kind of situation or this kind of circumstance. And that's kind of a cool full circle inversion of the initial paradigm. 
or this cultural understanding of what it means to be a Dungeons and Dragons player. Yeah. We also have Stranger Things to thank for the revival. It's not really the mm. revival of D&D, but a huge increase in D&D visibility and players. So another thing that I found while I was researching some of D&D's history that I found super interesting is that Stranger Things comes out in October of 2016. And so it's the okay. tail end of 2016. 2017, we see this huge spike in the sales of Dungeons and Dragons material. So Wizards of the Coast, or who currently own the D&D copyright, they bought the company in 1997. But this is as far as like the entire historical span since 1974 in D&D, that in North America alone, sales for the player book went up 41% from the year before, okay. which is a pretty substantial increase you've got almost half of <laughs> the people that were playing D&D. the numbers almost doubled and then in the next year they went up another 52 percent and then in the most current sort of incarnation of the statistics we've seen a 300 percent growth from hmm. 2017 and those are crazy huge numbers we're talking about like millions and millions of people so in 2017, it was about 15 million people that were playing D&D during the spike. And that contrasts to the idea that the sales of the original Dungeons and Dragons in 1974 were 1,000 copies, and in 1975 were 3,000 copies. Huh. That's a crazy difference. So <laughs> I think this like satanic panic, moral panic is happening at a time when just a couple, several thousands of copies of this thing are getting sold and distributed <sighs> and now we live in a time wild in which we have yeah millions in, and this is north america alone and so there's been an increase um globally in dnd playing as well and then the other stats that i found interesting are that 39 percent of players identify as women 61 percent identify as male this is in 2020 and then the age breakdown is that only 26% of those are over 35, 34% are between the ages of 25 and 34, and the winning D&D players come in at 40% of the 24 and younger crowd. So this is still something that the youth of America are playing in 2020. I have That's hope for the children. Really lovely. I guess hope for the children. I believe of tomorrow, in the children but... of tomorrow playing the D and D. Good head on their shoulders, these kids. Yeah, it's fucking great. Speaking of great people and or not so great people, your top five. Oh, this is tough because yeah, uh, my number five is the bird. Oh, uh, Merlin, right? Yeah, the Merlin, uh, the bird who says birds can't talk. I just thought that was cute. Fair. Yeah, you're number five. I I went with Basil the Skeleton. Oh, it was a yeah. well-articulated yeah. medical well done. anatomical piece. Well, well done, I Basil. I like that he was included. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. Who's your number four? My number four is the uh, the investigator in this movie because he is so needlessly intense when he questions the kids. <laughs> was Robbie a doper? Uh, no. Was he into smack? Marijuana? No. Alcohol? Dude, we're college students. Yeah, he had alcohol. 
I'll tell you one thing. If Robbie's down in those caverns, he's dead. Also, we can't close the beaches for 4th of July. We can't do it. <laughs> that's that's why you picked him, because of the Jaws. It's just a fun connection. I recently watched Jaws at a drive-in movie theater, and, and it was amazing. Uh, that's fair. My number four, whoever picked out JJ's hats. There was an array of them. He was always wearing one. It was great. It was great. All right. All right. My number three is whoever lit all those candles for the player scenes. <laughs> yeah, they, they put in a lot of work. Like, good job, man. All for all for not, you know? Like, it's not going to be seen very well because this movie looks like crap. Uh, it makes no sense because you can't play very well if you're using dim candlelight. I'm sure many have tried for atmospheric effect, but... No, not so much. And then, yeah, the, this this whole movie is dark. It, it's like uh, one of my favorite jokes from Mr. Science Theater about their movies that they say, man, this movie's really dark. Yeah, you can't see anything. That's this movie. It, <laughs> you can't, you can barely make out what the hell is happening most of the time. So, yeah. Yeah, the cinematographer does not make this list. But, no. yeah, poor PA that had to light all the candles, though. Yeah, that's fair. props. You're number three. Uh, The homeless dude. Oh, the king. The of, French king. The, the, the king of France. The king of France. I'm the king of France. Your majesty. He was delightful. (laughs) He reminded me that Terry Gilliam's out there. (laughs) Terry Ah, Gilliam movies are out there, I should say. Very true. Yeah. Made me want to watch The Fisher King. Reminded me that Fisher King is such a great movie. So thanks, Homeless Mm -hmm. King. All right. Good job. You're number two. Uh, Going outside of it now, uh, my number two is William Deere. Uh, the investigator, the real-life investigator who checked out uh, James Dallas Egbert. And I appreciate that he wrote the book and let everyone know like the true story about what was going down and that he you know, really just gave put everything he had into finding this kid uh, the way that he did is was fascinating to, to read about. So, yeah. Fair enough. I didn't read the Dungeon Master book, so my number two... <laughs> Is that sterile hospital room, (laughs) that hospital room bedroom, when that door opened and that bedroom was revealed, I experienced certain sensations that I'm not sure I quite have before because it was a combo of how I feel when I watch early Tim Burton movies (laughs) and then mixed with the experiences I felt doing ethnographic work with like medical fetishists. So there was, there was a strange combo there. It was glorious and it was an aesthetic i haven't quite seen that, this burton alexander mcqueen medical dungeon that is a niche so, yeah. within a niche within a niche market right there but all the yeah, same which is why it comes in at number two very nice well yeah you can have the fun ones i'll take the uh i'll take the reality ones here because yeah my number one is james dallas egbert the third just because i feel like this kid he got cheated in life and cheated in history too. And I feel that I, I, if anything, I would want to like show more people the dungeon master so they can understand. I mean, even though like we're, we're far beyond the satanic panic at this point. And because of stranger things, you know, like you said, dungeons of dragons, it seems to be looking better and better, but I think all the same people need to know this is what really happened. And the satanic panic said, no, 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 no. Look at the thing. Look at the the, the other. No, this th- this other thing. It, yeah, I feel like more people should know. So that's why, yeah, Dallas is my number one. 
Mine is... Take us there. The Casablanca Outrun. Because <laughs> it was better yes. than the hospital room. Yes. Just by a little bit. It, it was a different aesthetic. It definitely was where I would want to spend more of my time oh, in the hospital room. For sure, but yeah. Both of them were immaculately designed. JJ's mother has some real raw talent and she should be more appreciated for her dedication to aesthetics although there is something that yeah i'm like in a parallel world somewhere i am jj's mother like this is the kind (laughs) of stuff if i had the time and the resources because i do just constantly redecorate rearrange stuff people who know me that they come into my place like every single time the walls are different color so i related (laughs) to this woman but this casablanca outrun room it was a work of pure genius it was beautiful yes oh god you want i I want that green neon lighting just everywhere in my life now the green neon yeah it was really beautiful to add this like 80s noir neon lighting to the 1930s like jungle theme between this and kyle mclaughlin's pool and showgirls green neon lighting man you can't go wrong it's perfect yeah blue neon lighting always used to be my favorite but this green has grown on me. Yeah, I think for me now it's a toss-up between green and purple. It's fair. But if you grow like pinkish, all neon light purple. is great. Yeah. Oh, it's that's the true takeaway here is that all neon light is great. <laughs> if we've learned anything today, beyond the satanic panic, beyond the truth of the Dallas Egbert case, takeaway you need is you need neon light in your life. Light your life up with that neon light. Yeah, cruelty rating. Pretty high for me. Mascus Corner. Actually, mm-hmm. uh, I'll give this one a seven. Yeah, this one is like, yeah, a seven or an eight. And not because it's esoteric or inaccessible or experimental. It's just because it's boring. It's It doesn't have a lot of redeeming value in any way. And watching it was just an exercise in tedium. Yeah, there. I mean, there's scenes we didn't even bother talking about. There's a whole thing where Dan goes out back to the caverns to try and figure out where JJ hid the treasure, and 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 Kate follows him, and it it, it goes nowhere for no reason, and it doesn't matter. And the god, there are sections of the book that don't figure into the movie whatsoever. We just spend pages and pages with the families of these kids to get background on them. It adds nothing. So yeah, there's just it's just boredom upon tedium upon filler all for the sake of trying to make a statement about a board game moral panic and a moral panic causing a psychotic break in a kid which could be an interesting story like i don't even have a problem with the premise yeah (laughs) i am not insulted i have not scandalized i am not disregarding this movie because i'm somehow a DD player and it's says that you know D players go crazy i actually kind of love that idea i think there's a super that's kind of what riverdale's doing but i am all for a movie in which somebody has some sort of disassociative break from D if you're not basing it on a real person in which that wasn't the case right and if you do it in a fun way yeah i I'm not insulted. I'm not scandalized. I'm just bored. And that's, as we've said, the worst thing you can say about a film. Yeah, I will give you a quick example of what you're talking about. Uh, the short film Dark Dungeons, 
which was a 2014 short film uh, that is inspired by a religious track from Jack Chick, uh, which the tracks were like basically these like little booklets that were about two and a half inches by five inches, and they were 10-page comic books. And the Jack, the one on Dungeons & Dragons is called Dark Dungeon, and it's basically saying that D&D is a gateway drug that gets kids into Satanism. But the weird thing about the tract is that it seems to suggest that kids will actually be able to manifest real, tangible magic powers if they go too far into D&D. And so in 2014, these filmmakers contacted the Jack Chick organization and I guess talked to Jack Chick himself, who is like in his 90s and well beyond the point of giving a shit at this point, gave them the rights to adapt his miniature little comic book into a real movie and they flesh it out to 40 minutes and it really is showing these like you know perfect little teenage girls going to college and pure as can be and they hear about RPGing like they literally just keep calling it RPGing throughout the whole thing get into it go deep into it like it's a drug one of them is actually able to cast spells on people after a little while. And then finally, one of the other girls isn't as good at it and commits suicide over it, which is a thing that happens in the original the original Jack Chick track as well. Her <laughs> friend is freaks out by this, and then the RA of the dorm that they're staying in says, Hey, you know, I've been praying and fasting for you a lot. And I know what you're going through, and I can help you. Well, I can't, but my friend Jesus can. <laughs> and, and so she's like, yeah, you're right. Jesus is the way. Even though this girl has magic powers now, so why she cares so much about praying or fasting is beyond me. But there you go. And because she gives up D&D, also the evil... Uh, council of Satanists, uh, their castle blows up. Just that happens at the end too. Oh, yeah, yeah, naturally, as as it does. So, for those of you looking for a crazy version of all this, go find uh, D- Dark Dungeons. I think it's uh, like uh, available on demand on like Prime or Vimeo, that sort of thing. You can find it out there, but definitely worth a watch. And it's like a- incredibly cheesy, very corny. Uh, the filmmakers knew what they were doing, so I appreciate that. And that's a kind of independent filmmaking I really enjoy. Or watch the Wizards and Warlocks episode. Yes, all those things. The Greatest American Hero. But that one's fun. Or not, I'm walking on air. I never thought I could feel yes, so Yes, that free. is the theme song. Oddly, I knew, the, I knew the theme song really well. I don't know why I knew the theme song as well as I did, because I do not remember watching that show when I was a kid. Well, I... It would have been off the air, I think, before you were even that much of a kid, if at all. So, because I know it was it was in syndication before I was born. But oh, okay. the yeah, the song I think was independently already a song, though. So oh, it's sort of like okay. how you know title sequences pick songs. I don't think that was written specifically for that, but I would have to look that up. I hmm. haven't actually. But or watch season three of Riverdale because it's fucking amazing. <laughs> it's just this acid fueled ah. neon lit fever dream, and I adore it. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yes. So sounds like we would not recommend this movie to a friend. No, no, London. That might lead to a loss of something. What would that thing they would be losing be? You think? 
Yeah, well, I was going to say that, that it's important to know the history of this, especially if you're a gamer, mm-hmm. to know that it's out there, or if you're into history or 1980s. Fair enough. But yes, it certainly is not a film that provides anyone with any sort of salvation. Robbie! Pardue, what are you doing? Going to join the Great Hall. You can't. It's a trap. I have spells. I'm going to fly. You don't have enough points. I am the maze controller. Maze Maze controller? Yes. And I have absolute authority in this game. Game? Game. TJ, what am I doing here? Kate, why can't I remember? This is Bud Hayden, live from Pequod Campus, where I'll be reporting on the apparent disappearance of a Grant University student, the victim of a seemingly innocent game, Mazes and Monsters. Now, Mazes and Monsters is a fantasy role-playing game in which the players create an imaginary character. These characters are then plunged into a fantasy world of invented terrors. The point of the game is to amass a fortune without being killed. It's kind of a psychodrama, you might say, where these people deal with problems in their lives by acting them out. But in this case, there might be a loss of distinction between reality and fantasy, and possibly the loss of life in the process. I'll be back in three minutes with another live report. His mama drove him to school. He always made good grades. Horn rims held together by two band-aids. He had a pocket protector where he kept his ink pens. High water pants, no girlfriends. Pale as a body laying on a slab. He spent his prom night in the computer lab. He's the greasy-haired geek that the girls despise. So he won't be happy till we're all computerized. Say that the devil was in the heavy metal, naked women laying round the pool. But the preacher was wrong, the devil was a nerd in high school. The devil was a nerd in high school, that probably ain't news to you. He used up from hell on the tree of knowledge with glasses and a big IQ. He made a 1600 on the SAT. He would have made a 4 but got a D and T. He was a nerd in high school, and his mama named him Bill. Saying dollar bills straight from the gates of hell. and greasy hair the days of the week on his underwear he couldn't even get a date in the underworld he throws a baseball like a girl still ain't lost his virginity yet but he's the prince of darkness and the teacher's pet he's got three sixes behind his ears and an email female he genetically engineered Say that the devil was into heavy metal, naked women laying round the pool. 
But the preacher was wrong. The devil was a nerd in high school. The devil was a nerd in high school. That probably ain't news to you. He used up from hell on the tree of knowledge with glasses and a big IQ. He made a 1600 on the SAT. He would have made a 40, but got a D and PE. He was a nerd in high school, and he's gonna wind up a freckle-faced, greasy-haired Microsoft millionaire. Dungeon Master, your guide in the realm of Dungeons and Dragons. I'm escaping to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. Space!